light a candle to Satan and get ready. Spooky season is upon us. It's going to be Halloween. It is. It's going to be Halloween. And obviously the time of year when everybody wants to have cupcakes with fake blood all over them and plastic hands full of sweeties. I did that once. A little rubber glove full of sweets. Oh, scary. (laughs) (laughs) And also the teeth. I like the fake teeth. You know, the the Dracula fangs. What you eat. Mm. It is the season of, it's spelt Samhain, but it's actually pronounced in Celtic, Irish, Shavna. No idea what you're talking about. Shavna, Samhain. It's the origins of Halloween. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Halloween. Halloween. Origins are in Ireland. It's a New Year festival called Shavna, spelt Samhain, which was known in the ancient times as a celebration of nature, the ending of one pastoral year to the next. And then all of a sudden, everybody moved to America and adopted it and started handing out sweeties. And it's become the Haribo fest that it's now known as Bloody Halloween. People knocking on your door, begging for food. I know, all those kids wanting lollies if you're in Australia. Or, what is it, candy in America? Sweets in England. Sweets here in the UK, absolutely. Goodies if you're in Sweden. Right. Goodies. Nice. Yes, I know. But hey, we forgot to uh, welcome our eavesdroppers. Welcome them to eavesdropping the podcast. We didn't forget. (laughs) I was just about to do that. Welcome to you eavesdroppers out there. I'm Geordie. And I am Michelle. And you are eavesdropping on our conversation. And I know that you're glad to, because guess what, Michelle? What? I have a shout out. Shout out. Shout out. You're getting a shout out. You're getting a shout out. It's to a lovely listener in Victoria, Australia, a place called Wonthaggy. And I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly. I am Australian, (laughs) believe it or not. (laughs) I've just never heard of one faggy. It's the lovely listener, Danny, from all the way over in Victoria. She got in touch on Instagram, Michelle, to say that she's been a fan of this podcast for, and she says, I'm quoting here, ages. (laughs) I hope I did that justice. And she's calling herself a creeper in the background. But I think that's more of a lurker, especially at Halloween, lurking in the shadows. Danny, we see you. I think creeping on Halloween more than lurking. Lurking outside of Halloween, creeping in the Halloween season. Well, you know, she's not only been lurking and creeping, she's also been spreading. She's been spreading the word. She's a super spreader. We love you, Danny. She's a super spreader. We love love that you're super spreading on our behalf, Danny. She's telling all her friends, and they recently went on a lovely girls trip, just recently, actually, from Port Douglas. Where's that, Michelle? Up north. Is it? I believe so. Don't okay, good. quote me on that. I'm going to have to look that up now. I thought it was down south, but she's gone from Port Douglas to Cairns. So perhaps not that long of a journey. Because when she said that, I thought Port Douglas might be in Tasmania or something. And it would be days and days and days. But she said that on the way, they listened to their favourite episode, which was, guess what, Michelle? 
Eavesdropping. Yeah, but their favourite episode of oh. Eavesdropping. <laughs> Hoarders. No, it was the MLNs episode. They like, well, she likes that one the most. MLMs. MLMs, which is multi-level marketing, which is very interesting, wasn't it? Is that because she buys doTERRA oils and then she was horrified? Well, she didn't disclose that information. She just said it was her fave. And she said it was quality Ooh. road trip audio. And then she, quality was the word she used. And then she thanked us for, later she said, quality content and many laughs quality twice quality <laughs> two times quality street and laughs we got the laughs we got the laughs she said we have the right amount of vulgarity and toilet humor don't change a thing she says <laughs> danny just for you we won't now we have been asked to tone down the toilet humor and vulgarity in the past by some people who don't like the shits and the vomits and all that kind of stuff but they're American. And although we love you guys in America, we love you. We know that the Aussies can take it a bit harder than you can when it comes to disgusting things. So. To the poo-poos and the wee-wees and the droppings. <laughs> There's a place for everything here on eavesdropping. And Danny, thank you so much. And to all of Danny's friends, get in touch. We would love to give you all a shout out. So get in touch if you want to get a shout out for a friend or give a shout out as a gift for a friend. We're happy to do it up here on Eavesdropping. You can get in touch on the socials, eavesdropping underscore at Instagram, Facebook, which is eavesdropping podcast. That's <laughs> it. Facebook. And then there's the email, which is hello at eavesdroppingpodcast.com. Thank you, Michelle. Now, just before we wrap up with Danny, I just want to say, Port Douglas, it is in Queensland. Boom. Thank God for that. So it wasn't too long of a drive. Yes. I will say something, though, a little apology for our last week's episode, which was porn. Yeah, porn. And it may happen right now as well. The plosives. I'm very sorry. There were a few heavy plosives in that episode. The The production couldn't handle all the peas. Well, I thought you were going to say the heavy petting, but the there heavy plosives. <laughs> <laughs> there was plosives. Pornography, petting, porn, a plenty. <laughs> there was a porn plenty. a plenty. <laughs> but um, I also just want to say about that porn episode. Yeah, you know, to anyone who thought that I'm anti-porn, I'm really not. It was more that I think I was just a little bit surprised by digging into this and understanding how modern porn affects. The brain mm. affects relationships, how it is actually rewiring the brains of our young people. And I wasn't expecting that. I really thought, oh, we're going to have a little laugh about Debbie Does Dallas. Even that's not funny. No. And certainly not the Linda Lovelace story either. I'm not anti-porn. I just was giving some information over to all our listeners, some information that I hadn't known about before, i.e. It, it cooks your brain in a weird way. Yeah. So be careful. I mean, just like anything, as my mother would say, not regarding porn necessarily, but most things, she'd say, what does she say? Everything in moderation. That's what she says. <laughs> I knew. That's it. I was thinking of the other saying, which, which was, it happens to the best of regulated families. What? She'd say that when you got sick, when you were vomiting all night. She's like, it's all right, darling. It happens to the best of regulated families. That's not even a thing. <laughs> It is a thing in my house. That's a Robin yeah. thing. <laughs> I'm sure Jen has a few sayings of her own. Yeah, shut up or else I'll bang your heads together. <laughs> <gasps> <laughs> Can't do that anymore. <laughs> 
You can't reach them. They're no. too far apart. Anyway, shout out to Jen for uh, shout out Jen for all that head banging. That's kids. <laughs> so, Geordie, tell me, tell me, what? Yes, Michelle. What are we talking about today? What do you think? It's bloody Halloween coming up, so it's got to be some spooky shit, right? Yes. Shall I kick off then, telling you some stories about Halloween? Yes. Why not? Go for it. I'm ready to be scared. All right. Well, just one moment, please, caller. So. I'm going to tell you about something that actually happened the night before Halloween. Does that count? Yeah, I'll, I'll let you have it. Thanks. It was a Sunday. It was the 30th of October. It was the year 1938. And it was 8 p.m. Oh, my goodness. I'm scared already. Everybody was listening to CBS Radio, which is the Columbia Broadcasting System in the United States, when an announcer spoke the following words. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the air in War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Classic. The chances of anything coming to earth are a million to one, they say. No, that was later. That was Jeff Wayne's musical extravaganza starring David Essex called War of the Worlds (laughs) with all the sounds of the 70s. Amazing. I've never seen it. War of the Worlds, what a classic book. Did you read it? I think we had to for school. Ooh. Yeah. Dave Triffords and Oh yeah. War of the Worlds. It was all, I think, tied up together. But anyway, um, I have not read it for years. Obviously, I know that it tricked the world. So let's hear all about it. Well, this was the Halloween episode of the radio series called The Mercury Theatre on the Air. Now, Orson Welles was a member of the Mercury Theatre. He was only 23 years old and he directed and narrated this play, his adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds, which was actually written in 1898, just before the turn of the century. That's H.G. Wells. He's English. Herbert George Wells, as an aside, he was an English writer. Just said he was English. I'm saying it again. He was an English writer with the same ability to imagine a lot of future events and inventions, much like Arthur C. Clarke, who we spoke about recently. So he would write into his novels a lot of things which ended up coming true. Like, for example, uh, he imagined in one of his books, I think it was The Shape of Things to Come, something like that, aerial bombings before it became a reality in World War II. He was also a utopian dreamer, but enough about him. I'd like to put a pin in him for a later point because he's really interesting. But anyway, this version of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Try saying that really fast. It's not easy. But they're related. No, they're not. No. Oh, how odd. One's a Wells with an E-S. That's Orson. And H.G. is just a Wells. Like he's looking down a wells. <laughs> no, Zed. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the story, War of the Worlds. It was performed and broadcast live and took the manner of a breaking news report that a Martian invasion, if you've read the book, and Michelle has, so she knows what we're talking I don't about remember. here. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, it's the main. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember oh, that bit, but I remember the premise. <laughs> don't ask me the details. Well, it was like told in a story of a breaking news report that a Martian invasion was taking place in real time. The announcer was telling listeners that they would now be taken to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. Then some music would play for a while. Then the announcer would break in to report that Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory has detected 
explosions on the planet Mars. Then the music would come back in. There'd be another breaking news interruption. Listeners were then told a large meteor had crashed into a farmer's field in Grover Mills, New Jersey. Later on, there was another announcement, and then there was a reporter on site at the crash site. And he described what he saw in detail to the listeners. He was saying things like, There was a hole in the ground. There was a metal container inside it. At first, one extremely unattractive Martian started climbing out of its (laughs) cylindrical craft in the crash zone. And then the reporter said, good heavens, something's wriggling out of the shadow like a grey snake. Now here's another and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. I can see the, the thing's body now. It's large, large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather. But that face, it... It, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate. <laughs> now, <laughs> this sounds like you're back in the porn episode, I've got to say. That is exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Do you think that Orson Welles has a side hustle as an erotic literature novelist? Absolutely. It's, it's my dad wrote a porno, isn't it? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Slithering tentacles. Quivering. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's difficult to read that out without losing your shit. Anyway, back to the story. The Martians got into these walking machines and fired heat ray weapons at all the assembled onlookers. The reporter describes the scene in a panic and all these people are getting incinerated behind him and then it goes dead. After that, the radio listeners were given a series of updates on the alien invasion as the military tried to fight them in vain. According to the news reports, they annihilated a force of 7,000 National Guardsmen and after being attacked by artillery and bombers, the Martians then released that black poisonous smoky gas that was killing people as they approached and they began their invasion. Part one then ends with a live report from a rooftop of a Manhattan radio station and the correspondent describes crowds surging as they succumb to clouds of poisonous smoke being released by giant Martian war machines and dropping like flies as the gas approaches its location. Eventually he coughs and falls silent and then you can only hear the voice of a lonely amateur radio operator saying, is there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? Then it's silence. And that's the end of part one. I mean, it's quite scary stuff. It's so scary. I mean, it's it's slightly sexy, but it's scary <laughs> too. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first break after 30 minutes on air, okay? And then part mm-hmm. two resumed after the break. And it was more like just a radio play following this guy as he was trying to navigate the invasion in a radio play style of thing, trying to survive. It's Orson Welles playing someone and the ongoing Martian occupation on earth which lasts for a while and that bit's only about 16 minutes long and sticks closely to the book apart from obviously being transposed to 30s america from 1900s early 1900s england and it ends the same way though which is with the reveal and i will give you a little spoiler here if you haven't read it or seen any of the versions the martians eventually after killing loads of people and doing all sorts of horrible things and it's too scary for me to read michelle i have read excerpts oh uh. i'm telling you it's too scary i cannot do it but eventually they do succumb to human microbes and diseases and that's what they couldn't handle they they couldn't be defeated any other way 
it was just all of our lovely flus and covids and whatnot that knocked him off the perch in the end disease warfare that's eventual that's not immediate no it's a long old occupation you know and what you've got to remember is the date michelle it's 1938 war is afoot world war is afoot and during the intermission after part one shit had hit the fan word had reached the cbs executives of this widespread panic that was hitting the streets of new york and new jersey and apparently as many as one million radio listeners believed that what they were hearing was real. There was panic spreading throughout the streets in New Jersey, which is where the first annihilation, they were talking about it happening in Grove Mills is in New Jersey. Reports of terrified people jumping in their cars and jamming up the highways were reaching news outlets. And people were apparently begging police to give them gas masks to avoid being gassed to death by the aliens, and even calling their electricity providers to urge them to switch off the power so the Martians wouldn't see their lights. Oh my God, just turn your light off, lady. Just turn it off. (laughs) Dickhead. But one woman ran into an Indianapolis church, apparently, where evening services were being held and yelled, New York has been destroyed. It's the end of the world. Go home and prepare to die. (laughs) God's not looking over you tonight. He's not. Time to go home and die. And then there were rumours of suicides. But none (gasps) of these things were actually confirmed, Michelle. It's believed that some of the radio audience may have been listening to another show called The Chase and Sandborn Hour with Edgar Bergen, who was Candace Bergen's father, the actress Candace Bergen, who mm. no one listening to this will know who we're talking about because they'll be too young. She was Murphy <laughs> Brown. Do you remember Murphy Brown? Was she Murphy Brown? She was Murphy Brown, yes. What Candace else did Bergen. she do? She also had a few. Jen will know. Get in touch, Jen. Get in touch. Let us know. Edgar Bergen was Candace's father and he had this terrifying ventriloquist dummy so he was on the chase and sand one hour and when there was a musical break during that show a lot of people just switched stations as you would if you were watching tv because these are the days before tv really so just channel hopping and they missed the important announcement this is a mercury theater production on air this is the version of hg wells blah 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 so they actually thought because it was quite an innovative play and it told in a very new way that they weren't used to they kind of fell for it I guess it wasn't meant to be a hoax no it sounds like it was just meant to be a well-timed play the day before Halloween a bit scary oh it's a bit supernatural a bit alien yeah just get maybe everyone primed and prepped and in the mood for the Halloween spooky sessions sort of mayhem the next day So there's no real evidence, Michelle, to say that mass hysteria really happened. And people think it may have been played up somewhat by the papers. But it was chronicled that CBS executives and police turned up at the studio during that break after the first half. Much to Wells and the gang who were recording's horror to tell them that people were panicking and they had to make it clear that this was a fiction. And one actor recalls sitting in the green room while the studio just filled up with police and execs and it was a right carry on. They were tearing at each other and yelling and it was quite, it was mayhem in the studio. Don't you think it's interesting that they were doing it live to air and not pre-recorded? There was a lot of that at the time because that was yeah. how it was done, I how guess. How you did it. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the listeners who turned in late possibly got in a state thinking it was relating to the impending war, which I mentioned earlier, because they only heard a portion of the broadcast 
they were all tense and anxious anyway. And mm. some of them thought it was a German invasion or some thought it was a report of a natural catastrophe. So it definitely raised pulses for sure. By the end of the programme, there was a crowd of reporters, photographers and police standing outside the studio. So the entire cast had to slip away through the back doors. Nevertheless, Orson Welles, his career, despite getting himself quite the reputation as a bit of a trickster after this and having his name splashed across Times Square, Orson Welles causes nationwide panic and all this kind of stuff. His career took off. And because yep. <laughs> he, he was such an innovative storyteller, the publicity then landed him the deal with a Hollywood studio in 1941 that got him to write and direct and star in the apparently the greatest film that was ever made, Citizen Kane. I haven't seen that. Have you? No, I thought you were going to say Ben-Hur. Isn't that what people say? The best film ever made is? I don't know. Depends what source. Maybe it's bigger than Ben-Hur. <laughs> bigger yeah, than Ben-Hur. Yeah. So anyway, back to War of the Worlds. At the end of the broadcast, after all this kerfuffle, it ends with kind of an out-of-character breaking of the fourth wall announcement by Orson Welles. He ended by assuring the listeners, if your doorbell rings and there's nobody there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. And then he went on to say that the broadcast was their theatrical version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Amazing. So what are the chances of that happening again? Oh. Duping the world like that? I think doesn't matter what decade you're in, I think people are gullible. Do you? And I think people are scared. I do. I think you do it in a clever way because, I mean, you think about it, every April 1st, even though people know it's April 1st, yep. there are always tricks and people always fall for them. I think people are inherently, we're wired to to believe. Well, it's interesting you should say that, Michelle, because whilst doing this research, I stumbled across another story, which I just have to quickly tell you about. It mm. was from the BBC archives, and they have said that there are two dates where you can get away with kind of doing tricky kind of things, and that is 1st of April and the 31st of October. And one right. 31st of October in 1992 on BBC One, there was a TV show advertised with no fanfare at all called Ghost Watch. And it was a live, kind of like a crime watch show. Okay. What do you, what do you call it? Current affairs almost. It was a live ghost hunt with Michael Parkinson live in the studio with Breakfast TV's Mike Smith from the 90s and Mike Smith's wife, Sarah Green, who was very famous at the time. She was on site in a suburban house with Craig Charles, who back then was doing Red Dwarf and a lot of youth TV. So he was the fun young guy. Mm -hmm. The two of them were reporting live from the scene of the house, this haunted house in West London, where a single mother and her two young daughters lived. So Craig would be doing things like mucking about in masks and jumping in and out of cupboards while Parky and uh, Smith were back in the studio kind of po-faced. And then there was a live number coming across the bottom of the screen for you to phone in as they were kind of waiting for something to happen. Then there was a satellite link to an American skeptic who debates live with a British parapsychologist professor. And all of this was going on while they were waiting to hear from a poltergeist who apparently lived in this house with this woman and her two children called Mr. Pipes. And he was called Mr. Pipes because... <laughs> <laughs> He was called Mr. Pipes. <laughs> it's such a great name. It's an amazing name. I love it. 
But he was called Mr. Pipes because he used to communicate with them a lot by banging on the pipes. And of course, you can hear pipes banging. Then again, mm. turn around, it's just bloody Craig Charles acting the goat. Apparently he did a really good <laughs> job of just lots of banter and being a bit of a dick until all of a sudden it kicks off. There's a sighting of a presence. The children are speaking in demons' voices. A tech guy faints. The feed goes dead. They're back in the studios. Mike Smith is shitting himself. He's going, what? is everybody all right there? Because that's his <laughs> wife down there. You know, it's like, what's going on? <laughs> Everybody's panicking in the studios. Parky's trying to get all composed. But instead, he gets possessed. And that's the end. <laughs> <laughs> Parky possessed. Parky was possessed. I'm gutted I missed that. I'm going to have to look for it on YouTube because obviously in 92, I didn't have a television, so I wasn't watching TV at that time. But 20,000 outraged calls came into the BBC <laughs> after that particular stunt. I mean, it was always billed as a, as a uh, drama. It was just written in that different kind of way. It starred people who were on your telly all the time, delivering real news and current affairs. So it was a bit confusing. But apparently Craig Charles, who I love, did a really good job of playing a really annoying version of himself. Do you know what? I think we also have to remember that this is the early 90s and reality TV as a concept in the way that we understand it today did not exist. You did not have every second show on TV uh, as a reality TV show. That's you know, right. It was Big Brother was the first, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And so I think to have a show like that in the early 90s, it would have confused people because now we have an expectation of reality TV. Our brains know how to categorize it. I think yeah. in the early 90s, people would have been like, what the actual fuck is going on? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds amazing. I'm going to have to try and link that shit up in the show notes. So That would be fun. So they're my two um, hoaxes that weren't hoaxes. Just some people got a little bit confused and weren't in on the joke for Halloween. But I'm sure that people have been tricked. We live in a world where I do think that we are gullible and a little bit vulnerable and nobody wants to... We want to believe, right, Michelle? I looked up in the sky and I just thought, I don't know what that is, but I know what I saw. Don't tell me it was a wet balloon. Don't tell me it was some kind of wolf. It wasn't. I know. I know what I saw. So, Geordie, today... I'm ready. You ready? I'm ready. So, in the tradition of a good old-fashioned Halloween horror story, I've got not one, but three true crime horror stories for you that may or may not make your skin crawl. And put the shivers right up me. Exactly. So, turn out the light. Light a candle to Satan and get ready for (laughs) that's hurting my throat for terrifying real life Halloween horror. There you go, that's all you get. (laughs) So Wow. My voice is still not right from all my colds, but anyway, here we have the story of the Candyman Killer. Oh no. What? And I'm scared. Do you remember that song, Candyman? Who can, can make, make a rainbow? Rise, sprinkle it Cover with, it with her. <laughs> That's it. It's not this one. It's a Candyman killer. I don't like him. No. 
and you're not going to like him at the end of this either. So I'm going to take you back to 1974 to Deer Park. The worst times. <laughs> it was the best of times, the 70s. It's the worst for murders and stuff. Murder. Anyway, Murder. we're going to be, we're going to Deer Park in Texas okay. when on Halloween night, the local neighborhood kids decided to brave the rain to go out trick-or-treating. Now, the local optician, Ronald Clark O'Brien, he was out that night with his kids, eight-year-old Timothy and five-year-old Elizabeth. And along with them was his neighbor, Jim Bates, and Jim's two kids. And they were knocking on doors, they were collecting candy, and, you know, they were just going around the neighborhood. And they came to one house which had all the lights switched off, like no one was home. So don't knock. Well, they did because the kids, well, come on, they're obsessed. They want the candy. So they went up and they knocked on the door. But after knocking for, you know, quite a while, they had no answer. So the group ran off to knock on the next door of the next house. And Jim followed the kids who'd run off. But Ronald, he he lagged behind, like he was still knocking on the door. And uh, turns out when Ronald, the dad, Ronald, uh, mm. did catch up with the group, he had good news. He'd actually managed to get some candy for the kids from the people in the house that had no lights on. Oh. And he had this candy called pixie sticks. Oh. Imagine a straw, uh, like a tube. Yeah. Full of full, and it was sherbet. it was sour. It was sa- yeah. sour candy sherbety stuff. And so he was like, "Woohoo! Here you go, kids!" And he mm. gave pixie sticks to his kids, to Jim's kids, and also another kid who had run up and joined the group who they knew from church. Right. So after a day of trick or treating, all the kids went home, and before bed, Timothy was told by his dad Ronald he was allowed to have one treat from the candy bag before bed. And he chose the pixie stick because he loved sour candy. He loved these pixie sticks. But when he tried to get the sherbet stuff out of the straw, it was was really stuck. So his dad, Ronald, helped him get the sugar out of it so Timothy could eat this thing. But Timothy said it tasted bitter. So Ronald was like, ooh, all right. Ran to the kitchen, got him a glass of Kool-Aid to help wash it down. Less than an hour later, Timothy was dead. I knew it. Oh, that poor little boy. That's terrible. Yeah. And look, his his parents rushed little Timmy to hospital, but it was too late. There was nothing they could do. Mm. And one of the police officers who had been called to the hospital after, you know, the family and the, the hospital had informed the police that mm. this kid had, had been poisoned... This police officer called up the chief medical examiner in the next county and spoke to him over the phone about the case. And this medical examiner said, listen, by this stage, Timothy was already in the morgue. Can you go down and see if you can get any sense of smell from his breath? And so the police officer did. And he said it smelled like almonds. And that's when the chief examiner, medical examiner said, that's That's cyanide. cyanide. Yep. Once they did the autopsy, the medical examiner was right. Timothy had eaten enough cyanide to kill two people. Right. And tests later found that the top two inches of the pixie stick were pure cyanide. Oh, God. Thankfully, I think probably due to the quick thinking of this guy, 
calling the medical examiner. Yeah. The police officers managed to get the pixie sticks from the other kids before they'd tried to suck on the straws. And when the police went over to confiscate these pixie sticks, they noticed that these pixie sticks had been tampered with. Right. And they weren't sealed in the normal way. They had staples that Uh had been used to seal them together. In actual fact, those staples actually saved the life of one of the kids because when the police had gone over to the kid's house at night, the kid was asleep in bed. He was holding the pixie stick in his hand. He tried to open it, but the staple was really hard to Mm. open. It was really tough. And the kid clearly didn't have enough strength to be able to pull this staple apart. And he fell asleep with this pixie stick in his hand. Wow. Luckily, having not been able to open it. But at this stage, the police grabbed Timothy's dad, Ronald, and took him back to the neighbourhood where they'd been trick-or-treating to ask, like, where the hell did you get these pixie sticks? Can you identify the house? Yeah. Thing is, Ronald went back, but he couldn't remember. Hmm. He couldn't remember what the person who gave him the pixie sticks looked like either because he said he'd just been handed the candy sort of in the dark because the lights had been off in the house. And this really frustrated the police because Ronald was their key lead. He was their key witness. So they were like, come on, mate, your kid's dead. Like, get your brain together. Took him back to the neighbourhood. And finally, he pointed to the house with no lights on and went, yep, that's the one. So, they knocked on the door, but no one was home. So, they tracked down the guy who lived at this house and they figured out where he worked and they went to his office and arrested him. Turns out, this guy worked for one of the small local airports and he had an alibi. He was working that night. Everyone saw him for all those hours. He did shift work, so Mm -hmm. there was no chance that it was him. And when they questioned this guy's wife about Halloween night, she said, yes, they had turned out the lights early because they'd run out of candy. But they didn't give anyone any candy after the time that Ronald said he got the candy. And nothing seemed to add up until police discovered that Ronald had recently taken out life insurance policies on both his kids. Wow, what a cunt. Oh my God, that's some Halloween blue (laughs) language right there. (laughs) So I think we all know where this is heading. Turns out Ronald was deep, deep in debt. He owed more than 100,000 US dollars, which in 1974 was like being in debt for millions. So... They called Ronald's insurance company and sure enough, the day after Halloween, the day after his son Timothy had died, Ronald had called up the insurance company to ask about the payout. And this was all the police needed to get a search warrant for Ronald's house. What a monster. He's horrible. And when they raided the house, they found a pair of scissors with plastic residue on it that matched the Pixie Sticks packaging. Ronald was then arrested and taken into the station for questioning. And the more they looked into Ronald as their key suspect, the more they uncovered. Turns out Ronald had been studying at community college and had asked his professor questions like, what's more lethal, cyanide or a different type of poison? 
And mm-hmm. another guy who worked uh, for a local chemical company in Houston came forward after reading about the case and told the police that a man had come in to buy some cyanide but left after being told the smallest amount he could buy was five pounds worth. And not as in money but right. as in weight. And yep. wait, who sells cyanide? Oh, it was a local chemical company. I mean, I oh, guess, you know, okay. if they're rural, maybe maybe it's something to do with livestock or farming. I don't know hmm. if you need to put down animals. I, I, I don't know why you would have cyanide. I'm sure you couldn't do that now. No, you just go on the dark web. You can get anything there. But <laughs> You love it there, don't what? you? What? This guy at the chemical company said he didn't remember what the guy looked like more than he remembers the guy came in and he was wearing a blue smock, like a doctor's outfit, exactly what Donald wears optician. as an optician. Yes. Yeah. Now, remember that this is 1974 and DNA testing did not exist. And you couldn't trace things through bank cards, you know, purchases and whatnot. So even though the evidence against Ronald was mounting, they couldn't pin it on him. No way. Well, throughout the whole thing... Ronald was maintaining his innocence. He kept saying he didn't do it. Eventually, the case did go to court and Ronald did plead not guilty. Wow. And his defence tried to claim that it was the work of some random who just wanted to poison kids. Hmm. But unfortunately for Ronald, friends, family and co-workers all stood up in court and testified against him. Right, yeah. Or about his wife, I bet. I bet she was... Beside herself. I mean, I think they all just thought it was incomprehensible and they couldn't get their head around how a father could poison his own kids and potentially other people's kids for money, you know. So on June the 3rd, 1975, the jury took just 46 minutes to find him guilty on one charge of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. And an hour later, the court handed down Ronald's sentence. They sent him to death row for him to eventually be executed by electric chair. He was executed. Over the next 10 years, Ronald appealed, appealed and appealed against his sentence. But nothing got him off death row. And on March 31 in 1984, Ronald was put to death. But the electric chair was no longer used. They gave him a lethal injection. Apparently outside the Texas State Penitentiary, where Ronald was going to be given the injection, there were around 300 people uh, protesting outside and they were shouting trick or treat and throwing candy at the anti-death penalty protesters. Wow. Because it's a big thing. And, you know, that's it really. That's the true crime story of of Timothy O'Brien. That's awful. It is awful, but I did also read... That every year at Halloween, there's always some kind of hysteria around Halloween and parents being warned to be on the lookout for like dodgy lollies and check their kids aren't being acid or taps of ecstasy. Oh, I know. my God. But the thing is, Geordie, I just have to say, no one's giving away their party drugs on Halloween no. for free. So... Parents, I think you're okay. And (laughs) apparently, I know, the last time someone tampered with candy that was discovered on Halloween was back in 2000 when a man in Minneapolis was charged with putting needles in Snickers bars. 
and giving Ooh. them to trick-or-treaters. Now, okay. there was one victim, it was a teenager who got a slight prick in their mouth from the oh hidden dear. needle. And mm. I'm thinking maybe they were sewing needles. It sounds like it. You know, it's not going to kill you, but it's not very nice. No. But just to put all those parents at ease, since poor old Timothy O'Brien, there has not been a single case where a child has died after eating dodgy Halloween lollies. So Thank God rest for that. easy. But poor Timothy. Oh, yeah. Absolutely horrible. Murder, murder. It's true and, and it's crime. crime. Geordie, are you ready for another horror story? I'm so ready. Well, this time we're going to take a a time travel back to the 80s. Okay. We're actually going forward because we were just in 72, but now we're in the 80s, right? So we're going all over the joint. Backwards, forwards. Well, we went, we're in the 70s, so now we're going to the 80s. I guess it's forward from the 70s, but it's backwards yeah. from where we are right backwards now. Backwards from 2022, yeah. But we are going to the 80s, and for me, Great. this is the best decade ever for scary yeah. movies and horror films. Okay. It is. We've got yeah. The Shining, Nightmare on Elm Street, Alien. Oh, my God, yes. That's amazing. Yes. Halloween, obviously. I didn't watch that. Cujo. Night of the Living Dead. Yuck. Oh, my God. The Fly. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Creep Show. Oh, my God. We loved Creep Show when we were growing uh, up. What about that one with the guy who has like half a twin attached to him and he's really unattractive? Belial, his name is. Oh, Basket Case. That was a horrible Was that film. from the 80s? Yeah, I saw it in the 80s. Yep. Do you know what? I think this was Creep Show, and my sister Steph will remember this. There was a scene, and I swear, we still say this to each other, however many decades later. Bedelia, give me my cake, Bedelia, you I, bitch. I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> it's from Creep Show, and I don't even know what it's referring to, but. Steph, if you have more memory about Bedelia, what? you bitch, who's and her called, cake. Who's called Bedelia? I don't know. It's from Creepshow. I think it's from Creepshow. Do you know what? If I'm wrong, I'll I'll correct this in the show notes. Okay. But anyway, loads of films. Friday the 13th, Evil Dead, Poltergeist. Yeah, Poltergeist. Children Woo. of the Corn. Oh, God. Yeah. Come on. Che- Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yes. Oh, my God. They were thick and fast, weren't they? All the Twilight Zones. Twilight Zones. They were scary. Deliverance. Oh, that was 70s, was it? I don't know. I don't know. But that that's really terrifying yeah. in a different way. Yeah. Then there were those like weird scary films like Bad Taste from, uh, what's his name? Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. And yeah. They're all classics anyway. The Cars That Ate Paris. Yeah. Well, these are, these are all movies. This, my friends. Is real life. Is a real life horror oh. show. So, in 1982... 69-year-old Marvin Brandland and his wife, Ethel. The names. Fantastic names. Marvin and Ethel. Love them. They had spent Halloween evening handing out candy to loads of trick-or-treaters who'd knocked on their front door in Fort Dodge, bad name, Mm. in Iowa. Now, after a busy night, you know, they'd been handing out candy here and there to everyone, all the local kids. They were tired, so they were getting ready for bed. When there was one more knock on the door. And when they opened it, they saw a trick-or-treater 
with a pillowcase over their head with holes cut out for eyes. And the person said, trick or treat, give me your money or I'll shoot. Oh, no. Well, poor old Ethel, she just thought the whole thing was a joke. And apparently she playfully tried to lift up the pillowcase off over the person's head so she could see who was under the the sheet hood because... In her mind, it was a kid. She thought it might be a relative, oh, yeah, a kid or a relative yeah. playing a bit of a practical joke because their granddaughter Teresa had literally just left the house uh-huh. a few minutes earlier. So she was thinking, "Oh, it's just, it's just our grandkids having a laugh." She didn't want to lob a chocolate orange at his head and then shut the door in his face. Well, she should have because, as Ethel was trying to get the hood off yeah. to see who it was, the trick or treater held the pillowcase down and just was. A bit aggressive. So Ethel thought, oh, they just want candy. I'll get it. So she turned around and started walking to the candy bowl. But the pillowcase person followed her in. Oh, no. Shut that door, Ethel. I know. Shut the door, Ethel. Then the pillowcase person pulled out a gun. Oh, no. Not a toy gun, a real gun. And demanded that Ethel and Marvin go downstairs to the safe that they kept in the basement. Oh, he knew about that, did he? Interesting point. Well spotted. Because thing is, Marvin was a World War II army vet. Mm-hmm. And although he owned a small carpet business, he and Ethel weren't rich. But yes, they did have a safe with a few precious things in it. But no one except a very few small amount of family members even knew Ethel mm-hmm. and Marvin had a safe. Yeah. So Marvin thought, oh, it must be someone from the family having a laugh. So he sort of just reached for the gun because he'd had enough of this nonsense yep. and this stupid prank. Thing is, gun went off. Oh, no. And poor Marvin, and trick warning, Marvin was shot dead in the throat. Oh, no. The trick or treater freaked out, wrenched the pillowcase off their head and ran out of the house. But the thing is, despite the fact that Marvin was rushed to hospital and Ethel was obviously tending to him. She didn't see. No, she, didn't she see was the too face. busy looking at her husband, trying to help him. Yeah, of course. Marvin was rushed to a regional hospital and then airlifted to a bigger hospital in Des Moines. But sadly, he died on the operating oh. table in the early morning hours of October 31, 1982. Uh-huh. Months passed by and the police had absolutely no leads on who killed Marvin, you know, obviously he was still out there. I say he, we don't know it was a he. Yes. They, and look, the thing is, poor old Ethel, you know, she was still in shock. She was sad and she was lonely without Marvin. Oh, it's so sad. And on Thanksgiving that year, surrounded by her family, she just broke down. Mm. And a few months later, Ethel died of what the family say was a broken heart. Broken heart, heart, of course. Oh, it's devastating. Now, I told you that Ethel hadn't really managed to get a good look at the person who shot poor old Marvin, but she did see something. And she said that the pillowcase person had blondish hair, blue eyes, because remember that it had been cut out where the eyes are. So she, she knew that the killer had blue eyes. She thought the killer was maybe about five foot eight. Mm. And interestingly was between 16 and 20 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. Just Specific. Yeah. And at this point, after Ethel told the family the description of the person she thought as much as she had seen, 
the family put two and two together and they worked out who the shooter was, which in their mind was confirmed when this person, who was someone that the family knew from around town, this person started bragging to people that they they shot Marvin. Oh, my God. Why would you brag about that? Well, because they're a kid. And at the time, this person was suspect number one with the police. But there just wasn't enough evidence to make an arrest. And back in 1982, DNA testing was pretty shit. So the pillowcase hadn't given anyone any clues. But fast forward to 2010 when the pillowcase was retrieved from evidence and sent to a high-spec testing lab to see if any DNA could be extracted from the cloth. After 28 years, the family had their fingers crossed that finally this person would get named and they could finally have closure and some peace. Yeah, for sure. Mm, When the DNA results came back. No? No, it turns out there just hadn't been enough on the pillowcase to get a hit. Oh, no, that's disappointing. And the family were devastated, yeah. But the thing is, they still have the pillowcase. And remember, this was like 12 years ago that the Uh pillowcase was last tested. And there have been a lot of advances in DNA testing. So they're hoping that down the line in the future, there will be enough evidence or that they will be able to have better technology to be able to harvest some of this DNA. And it might just give them enough evidence to convict who they believe killed Marvin. But they won't say who it is. They can't. I think legally they're not allowed to say it. Yeah. And it's something that we'll just have to wait for. But on the face of it, this kid between 16 and 20 years old, they've got away with it. They've literally got away with murder. Yep. I'm going to put a link in the show notes in case anyone from Iowa has any information about Marvin's unsolved murder because they, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation is still taking you know information on this cold case. So I'll put that in the show Let's notes. Let's reach out and touch to all our Iowan listeners. And if we can get this case closed, Michelle, then we've done a great job, or you have. Thanks. And now I've got my last little story. Whoa. Can you take it? Can you take it? Can you take some more horror? I think I can just about take one last bit of horror. All right. Well, we're going to skip to Halloween in 2004 in Napa Valley in California. Okay. Nice. Nice place to be on Halloween. I know with all those lovely wines. Delish. Mm. But on this evening, two roommates... Two girls, lovely girls, beautiful girls called Leslie Mazzara and Adrienne Insonia. They'd had an evening of handing out candy to all the kids that had knocked on their door. And they were exhausted and they decided they wanted to go to bed at around 10.30 that night. So Leslie and Adrienne slept in adjacent bedrooms upstairs in the apartment they were living in. Downstairs, there was another room where their other roommate, uh, Lauren Mianza, was living. So, at around two o'clock in the morning, Lauren woke up because she could hear something going on upstairs. And then she heard screaming and Mm -hmm. she was fucking terrified. Oh, dear. She froze. She didn't know what to do. Then she heard someone and she thinks it was a man because of the heaviness of the footsteps okay racing down the stairs and (gasps) leaving the apartment 
And after she was sure that the intruder had left, she went upstairs to her roommates only to find both of them had been brutally stabbed and were barely alive. Oh, my God. Michelle, this is awful. I know. And look, she immediately called the police. But by the time they arrived, both Leslie and Adrian were dead. So a few hours after the murders, detectives went into a house one block away and pounded on the door of Adrian's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Christian. They went in, had a look around his room, confiscated a knife they found in the corner of his room. And they took some samples of blood and clothes and bed sheets before oh. asking him to come down to the station for questioning. And look, after grilling him on his relationship with Adrian and also trying to ask him where he was at the time of the murders, he was pretty legit and he was eliminated as a suspect. But investigators were convinced that the killer knew Leslie and Adrian and knew where their bedrooms were because they believe the killer went directly up the stairs to the bedrooms. And looking at the wounds on the body, detectives thought that Leslie was the killer's target and his first victim because they believe that she was attacked while she was asleep. Oh, no. They also think that Adrian was woken up by the noise and went to help her friend but paid with her life. Now... Adrian, it seems, was a fighter and she did manage to hurt the killer and she'd scratched him or done something because drops of his blood were found at the scene. Now, thinking that Leslie was the intended victim, investigators, you know, looked hard into Leslie's life. She hadn't been living in Napa for long, but it seems she was really popular. She was lovely. She was absolutely stunning and had loads of guys interested in her. And apparently, according to Leslie's best friend, Amy, men just fell hard for Leslie. She was just that type of girl. So the police were exhaustive in collecting DNA evidence from loads of her ex-boyfriends. So because they had the blood from the scene of the crime, it was really easy for them to eliminate people. So Mm -hmm. they'd gone to Leslie's ex-boyfriends and guys she'd been dating to see if they were a match, but... Mm -hmm. Along with uh, with Christian, Adrian's on-again, off-again boyfriend, they were all ruled out as suspects. Then, in September 2005, almost a year after the murders, police decided to make this piece of evidence which they had kept quiet, they decided to make it public because they just weren't getting any leads and they thought maybe someone will come forward. Oh, yeah. So, on the night the girls were killed... The police had found outside the house a load of cigarette butts <gasps> and the DNA on the cigarette butts matched the DNA of the killer's blood. Oh. So the thing is, the killer smoked a really unusual brand of cigarette called ah. Turkish Gold. Okay. And the police said, and this is a quote, this is when they put this evidence public. Now appealing to people if you know someone who smokes this brand or sells this brand who and who is your customer yes please come forward yeah and the police said we feel like the cigarette brand is something that's going to prompt someone in the public to make that one phone call that's going to lead to the identity of the killer five days later police called adrian's mother 
to tell her they'd arrested someone. And it was the husband of Adrian's best friend, Lily. Oh, no. Yep. So, Lily's husband. Yuck. Yeah, Eric Koppel. He'd seen this news report about the cigarettes and he freaked out and felt like, fuck, the police know who I am. And he felt like the police were closing in on him. Yeah. So he actually went to the station and turned himself in. He confessed to the murders. Wow. Yeah. When they did a DNA test, they confirmed it was his blood that was found at the scene and he was charged with double murder. Oh, gosh. Now, months later, instead of having a trial, because if he'd had a trial, he would have faced a death penalty. Yeah. So instead of doing that, Eric Koppel pleaded guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Oh, okay. That's what you want. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you're just going to rot in a cell forever? Yeah. In some ways, he should because to this day... He has never revealed and no one knows why he did it. Was he having an affair? Nope. No one knows the motive. Bloodthirsty. Yep. And it's really heartbreaking for the family because they still have so many questions and he refuses to speak. So maybe all those years in prison, he'll maybe find it within his heart to like come clean and at least give the family some reason why this awful thing happened. Yes. And that's all I got for you. Well, that's incredible, Michelle. And you know what it proves? Guys, happy Halloween. Monsters are real. They are. My goodness me. And they could be smoking Turkish gold. Turkish pride. Oh. (laughs) Turkish pride. Well, thank you, Michelle, for all those wonderful gory stories for our lovely Halloween spooky season. I hope that everybody enjoyed the spooky stories that we gave you and that you all have a lovely Halloween. Don't go outside. Don't knock on doors. Don't eat candy. Just don't do it. Stay inside. Have a lovely cocktail. Put some (laughs) telly on. You know, keep safe. Turn the lights off. Yeah, watch some scary movies from the 80s. We just gave you a whole load, so... Watch Ghost Watch and War of the Worlds. <laughs> Don't watch that. I think it's going to be horrifying. I think yeah. the whole War of the Worlds thing's just too scary. I mean, it's one of those classics that everyone... You all know about it, but you don't know the story. Mm, you yeah. Don't, yeah, the details are a little fuzzy, but not anymore. I've cleared that right up for you. You <laughs> did. Oh, thank you so much. And now, Geordie, all we have to do and say is... Wherever you are. Whatever you do. Just, just keep... keep Eavesdropping, 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 e